This podcast covers our second session of Bible study on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Our keywords for today are going to be foundations in unity, and we're going to read a little bit of this letter and talk about how foundations can uh, help us uh, read scripture. We'll talk a little bit about how uh, Lutherans in particular read scripture, um, which basically comes from Paul uh, more than anything. And then we'll also talk a little bit about how that might help us talk about controversial topics. We'll start with one today that's not particularly controversial in our church anymore, but it has been and still is in others. So we'll begin with uh, some reading from chapter 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. Paul uses lots of metaphors here uh, to talk about the church. One of the, uh, an important part of Paul's writing is that everything that should happen that happens should happen for the building up of the church. And so he uses building metaphors and garden metaphors. But he's also making the point that it's not about any particular personality. In the Corinthian church, there were divisions amongst people who followed basically a cult of personality. It's like the uh, you had the Kardashian faction and the the uh, I don't know, pick your celebrity fact, faction. Uh, but it was Apollos, and there were some others, and and so there were all these factions who worshipped a particular uh, apostle or teacher, but forgot that really this is about God and not about a particular personality. And so we do the work as servants in the church, but the growth of the church is up to God. And then I'm going to read uh, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Something important to know about the Greek language is that uh, pronouns have plurals and singulars and males and females, this you here is plural. And so it's not an individual that's the temple. It's the church. It's this congregation is the temple. It's Christ's body. And if somebody is working against that temple, working against that unity, then that person is a problem. And so this is this part emphasizes really two things. Humility, which goes again back to our preaching of Christ crucified and not Christ the uh, warrior king. And then unity is important. So those are the foundations that we're going to talk about really today and how we can read scripture through them. We got, uh, and particularly the foundation is uh, Christ crucified. And that's how Lutherans read scripture is, is through the lens of Christ crucified and risen. And how we approach things is all for the building up of the church and maintaining unity. It doesn't necessarily mean we always agree on everything, but we don't let those disagreements tear apart the church. I would invite you to think for just a minute about how it, how it, what the difference would be to say that our foundation is Christ crucified and risen, and that we read scripture through that, versus others who would say that um, their foundation is the Bible. And we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of, of passages and why Christ crucified uh, is, I believe, a better foundation than just saying the Bible, particularly if you're going to say it's the whole Bible and, and that it's all weighted equally. 
So, as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about something that seems pretty settled in our church, which is the role of women in the church, um, and then talk a little bit about foundations and how that can help us. So I'm going to go to chapter 11 and read 2 through 16. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays, any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It's one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, woman is not independent of man, or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through women. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So this passage, I think, is um, a little confusing. Like, I have no idea, for the most part, what he's talking about. And I think the reason for that is because he's dealing with social culture, social customs of the time. And so part of the challenge of reading scripture is to figure out what is timeless and applies for all times and all places, and what things really are limited to the particular culture. It can be different to tell, tell that apart, but just by listening to it, we know that things have changed a lot, and our culture doesn't share much of any of those customs about hair coverings or hair length or any of that. It's it's, And in the end, Paul just finds, it's, it's almost like he says, I don't care, do what you want. Um, at least it's kind of the way I interpret it. The main point of reading this is that while he spends all his time talking about coverings for the head and hair length and all of that, the one thing he doesn't say is that women women shouldn't prophesy or pray. And so um, it's not it's it's a little bit. Um, we spend a fair amount of time talking about some of the issues with this, and and it's and it is annoying for women in particular. But I use this because it says that. Uh, it, it, it indicates that women can prophesy and can pray. And really all of Paul's ministry, and, and Jesus for that matter, actually held women in pretty high esteem. There's other places in, in Paul's letters where it's clear that he's got co-workers. Um, he's got other, other teachers and co-workers. And, and in Philippians, there are two women who appear to be pastors who are going to lead the church at Philippi. And so there's just not much about Paul's um, ministry or other letters that would would say that women shouldn't have a role in the church and even leadership roles. So now we're going to go to a, a, another scripture that will um, confound us even more. And this is chapter 14, and we're going to read 26 through 40. What should be done then, my friends? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. 
But if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, let the first person be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only ones it has reached? Anyone who claims to be a prophet or to have spiritual powers must acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. Anyone who does not recognize this is not to be recognized. So, my friends, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So here Paul is, is lifting up a concern for orderly worship. Uh, the problematic passage, of course, is, is uh, as in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches and not speak. They should ask their husbands about it when they get home and just not say anything. Most Bibles will have this part in parentheses, and then there will be a footnote because in some of the ancient texts, this, those few verses about women in church appear there, and in other places they appear at the end of that particular passage. Many scholars have, have decided that what that means is that, that, passage, that those particular verses were not a part of Paul's original letter. They were added by a later scribe who was um, probably writing in a time um, when women... The church was becoming a little bit more hierarchical, and people were more bothered by the role of women in church, which they felt had become too lax. Um, so anyway, this scribe, rather than just copying what he was supposed to copy, added this paragraph. That's always what I've kind of believed, that Paul never wrote that. It's just inconsistent with what I read earlier. It's inconsistent with much of his other writings, and it's in inconsistent with the ministry that he practiced. Uh, one of the commentary that I'm using, uh, one of them is by N.T. Wright, um, an Anglican priest whose work I've appreciated greatly over the years. He raised a different possibility that I'd not actually thought of. The language and worship would have been Greek. It would have been the Greek that men learned when they were educated. Um, it, it may have been called Koine Greek, which is what we often call it now, or um, but it's just, it's the Greek language. However, like a lot of places, and in, still very commonly in, in uh, many tribal uh, societies where there's different dialects, the women weren't educated in that language. They would have been educated in their, their um, own um, dialect and would have learned what they needed to know for uh, raising kids and maintaining a household and all that. But they weren't educated in the common Greek language that would have been worship, used in worship. And so what N.T. Wright says is that perhaps the issue is not that Paul wants the women to be silent in church, but that the, there was this general chaos because the women didn't know what was going on because they couldn't understand it. So maybe they were talking amongst themselves, trying to figure out um, what was going on and just saying to each other, did you understand that? What did he just say? Or maybe they were shouting across the aisle uh, because men and women would have been separated. Maybe they were shouting across the aisle and said, hey, what did he say? And so you can kind of imagine this chaos, and that particular kind of chaos would fly in the face of Paul's orderly worship that he's trying to maintain here. So anyway, whatever way you end up going with that, it, I think it seems pretty clear that it was not Paul's belief that women shouldn't speak in church. 
And so that's um, one of the ways that we uh, that we get at um, the fact that our church has lots of women pastors and really no expectation that women remain silent. So let's go back to our talk about um, foundations and how can we use our foundations to help us with this argument? Now, obviously, this, this particular one has some contradictions. There's the Bible itself seems to contradict itself. And so that can be something we use. But you can also use foundations. So let's talk about if our foundation is Christ crucified, I think that can be a help to us. Because as I said, that upends our no traditional notions of power. In the early church, both in Jesus' ministry and in Paul's ministry, women had an um, unprecedented role. Women were the first witnesses to the uh, resurrection. He, Jesus had female disciples. Um, Paul worked with women in, in planting churches and growing churches. Women had an unprecedented role. And what I think happened is, is that time went on and, and the church became more hierarchical and there were power structures built into it. The people who always lose in that kind of battle are the people who started out with not much power. And in that case, this would be women. So if we're going to talk about Christ crucified, that means we give up our notions of traditional power. And in particular, we give up our notions of patriarchal, patriarchal power, um, power that keeps people oppressed, keeps people from being full participants. All of those things fly in the face of a Christ who was crucified and so that foundation can help us because we can't just discard people at the bottom because Jesus stands with the people at the bottom, with the suffering people at the bottom. So that foundation can help. We can also talk a little bit about unity and about how about the purpose of building up the church. When fully half of, a, of, a, uh, of the population is excluded from offering their gifts to a church, then we're not exactly doing something that leads to building up of the church. So both of those... Um, um, things can help us with this argument. Um, we talk about power and, and the Christ on the cross upends our notion of power. And then we also talk about unity in the sense of not excluding a portion of the population for a particular reason. And so, um, because our goal is to build up the church and we want to use the, the gifts of, of everybody, including, as in this case, both men and women. So I think as we talk about other controversial things and try to use um, Christ crucified as our basis, I think that can help us a ways. If we talk about if if all we're going to if if what we say instead of Christ crucified as our foundation, instead of that we say that the Bible is our foundation, then we're kind of stuck with some contradictions. We're stuck with some things that just don't make sense anymore. And so um, I really uh, feel like our uh, our Lutheran foundation of uh, of looking at scripture through the lens of Christ and especially Christ crucified and risen, it's going to help us with some of the more difficult conversations. So I would invite you to reflect on this and have, uh, if you have questions for me, please feel free to ask them uh, and uh, join us again for our next session, which will be in two weeks. Uh, we do not have Bible study this coming Sunday. So thanks for listening. <music>